Hello and welcome to the European <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Why so sad? Because I had a skiing injury. Oh, Dominic, what happened? Tell us all about it. Well, okay, I was skiing really well and the teacher was really impressed with me. On my first day, I had private lessons because I missed ski school. And uh, he was like, this is great. You don't need another lesson. You can just practice because you know what the technique is. You just need to get the hang of it and for it to become second nature. So I did that. And then on the second day, went down the blue slope and uh, was going really well. I was like carving and Thomas and Hans, my husband and father-in-law behind me, were shouting, yeah, this is it. This is it. And then I was like, (laughs) oh, no, I'm going really fast. I don't know how to stop. And um, yeah, I stopped by crashing into some thick snow, but twisted my arm. And broke my oh, Dominic, were you still shouting this is it as you crashed into the tree <laughs> no I think they were shouting this is it and I was like ah! <laughs> oh, but how are your injuries now yeah I mean it's not so bad the doctor in Austria told me that it was nicht so dramatisch and I've not been in that much pain so I'm okay it's not ideal with my work as an opera singer on stage because I've discovered that there's a lot of shoulder patting that happens on stage um (laughs) that's how a lot of the acting happens touching each other's shoulders what in like a sort of reassuring way or an angry way oh either or in in like a fraternal way Fraternal shoulder patting. Yeah, you know, like, hey, you. My favourite bit of operatic acting that I've ever seen you do was when you're in that opera where you had to pretend to be a journalist for a bit. You were talking into like a dictaphone and like holding your hand to your ear (laughs) like you were on TV. Do you remember that? Yes, that's literally like the only (laughs) practice I've had at pretending to be a journalist before starting this podcast. That's where I got my training. Um, I've also been in Austria this week. Yeah, I was going to ask. I didn't really get to see very much of it. I was in Vienna for some United Nations peace talks for Syria, which I don't really want to talk about because they were really depressing and nothing happened in the sense of stopping an awful war that has killed hundreds of thousands of people. That was pretty grim. But it was nice to see Vienna, even if only very briefly. I didn't really get to see much outside a windowless press room and a car park where all the like Syrian regime and opposition people were arriving. Uh, we spent a lot of time in the car park. But um, I took a taxi with a BBC correspondent and it's beautiful. And I just kept saying, what's that? What's that amazing building there? And she was like, oh, that's just a church. It's not even a very good one. <laughs> and it was amazing. These things all look like Disney palaces. It's really cool. I did notice that it is ball season at the moment. There were like posters everywhere for balls. So we're going to be talking to a Viennese ball etiquette expert to talk about the whole ball scene in Vienna and like why it's such a huge part of the culture still. I mean, it's all like white tie and stuff. It really looks like stuff from 100 years ago. But before that, fish. Fish, yes. Oh my God, I've just seen that I've written so many notes about this. There's so much to say about this topic. We are going to dive into a story that has created a bit of friction between our respective countries of residence, Katie, hasn't it? We're nearly at war over little fishies. We are nearly at war. Well, the fishermen are nearly at war. Um, So yeah, the French fishermen are very unhappy with the Dutch fishermen and women. Um, This all stems from a controversial new method of fishing known as pulse fishing, which actually isn't that new. It's been around for quite a few decades now. Um, With this form of fishing, 
small electrical impulses are sent out from nets which briefly stun the fish who then hopefully swim upwards and into the nets. Mm -hmm. Now, this might sound terribly cruel, and perhaps it is, but there is a really good argument in its favour in that this method uh, means that the nets don't have to trawl the bottom of the ocean. I know a really, really shamefully small amount about where my food comes from. And I've got to confess, if I eat a plate of fish and chips like a good British person, I don't think really that much about how it was fished. But most of our fish, like most fish that comes from commercial fishing, comes from sort of trawling along the bottom of the seabed, right? Which is not very good for the environment. Yeah, unless you like pay for the really expensive fish, which says line caught. Um, and that means someone's like individually sat there and caught it on a line, which is much better for the environment. Yeah, but the idea with this method, if I've got it right, is that it's... It doesn't drag as much along the seabed and therefore hopefully doesn't involve as much environmental destruction. Is that right? Yes. It's officially been banned in the EU for a while now, except for some exemptions that have been handed out for scientific research. And the Netherlands have really taken advantage of these exceptions, more so than any other country. And actually people argue that the Dutch government kind of taken the piss and surely they don't need nearly 90 shipping vessels for this scientific investigation. And they're actually just doing it commercially and pretending it's for science. The French fishermen are really upset about this because they think now the Dutch fishermen have such a huge commercial advantage mm. and that a lot of the fish are going to disappear from the sea because they're all being so effectively caught by these evil electric fishing nets. Yeah, and in fact there was a letter uh, last week signed by 200 European chefs saying we don't want to work with seafood that comes from this fishing method that is going to hurt the sea. And they're also saying that the fish isn't as good because it was Stressed out? Ooh. How can you tell if a fish is stressed? I mean, I imagine the fish is stressed if it's caught by a hook as well. Having a hook put into you for the last few minutes of your life sounds hideous. That's not how I want to go. That's for sure. No. Um, and I think some of them said it bruised the fish as well, so the quality of the fish isn't as good. And uh, fishermen got so angry about this in France that they've been blocking Calais this week. Did you see? Yeah. That must have been really annoying. Really annoying for all the tourists coming across. It's like one of the busiest shipping lanes in Europe. They really wanted to make a show and show that, look, this is really affecting our livelihood. It's been in the news a lot because a couple of weeks ago, the European Parliament voted to ban it again outright. Although I think that's not like a final, final vote. Yeah, it was just an advisory vote. Um, but anyway, we decided we wanted to talk to someone who knew a bit more about this than us. Someone from Greenpeace uh, in the Netherlands, a guy called Pavel Klinkhammers, and hopefully he can explain to us what's going on. Pavel, thank you so much for joining us on a Saturday morning when I'm sure you have better things to do. It's really kind of you to take the time. It's always uh, nice to talk about pulse fishing on Saturday morning, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've just been chatting about pulse fishing a bit and trying to give a brief outline of the different arguments. But um, I was wondering whether you could tell us what your current position is on whether you think it's a good or a bad thing generally. I think at this stage it's very difficult to say whether pulse fishing would be uh, a blessing or only a blessing in disguise. Um, because we're still waiting for the scientific proof about environmental impacts of pulse fishing. And I think that's where the main problem is right now. Uh, there has been a big scientific research being set up and the results are being uh, expected in 2019. 
And that's, I think, where the problem starts because the Netherlands just gave out too many uh, licenses to fishing vessels, which go well beyond uh, the scientific need of it. And that, of course, is a cause of lots of frustration by other EU, EU member states. Tell me, Pavel, how come the du- it was the Dutch in particular that really started using this when the, the rules got loosened back in 2006? Because they seem to be the ones who've really, really taken advantage of that loosening. Pulse fishing is a fishing method that is particularly important for the Dutch fishing fleet because the Dutch fleet is fishing a lot on uh, bottom-dwelling flatfish like place and therefore yeah, they're used to that method. They're, they're used to beam trolling m- much more than any other country in the EU. What exactly is beam trolling? That's where you have two nets on the, each side of the fishing vessel and those nets have a big change and those chains are uh, plugging through the, the seafloor. By doing that, all the fish are being startled up and being taken into the net. And that's how you catch those fish, but they have a large detrimental impact on the environment because you are really destroying the seafloor. Apart from that, it's also using a lot of fuel. And that's why the fishing sector was interested in developing a new uh, technique, especially when the fuel prices were uh, rising and rising in the 2000s. I found it quite difficult while doing a bit of research for this bit of the podcast to work out what the truth is. You know, There's a lot of disinformation out there and you can't really tell what people's motivations are for telling you certain bits of information. How much are big lobbies a part of this on both sides? They are huge. They are huge. Uh, and they have been going on for many years, definitely from the Dutch side, where the fisherman has been lobbying very, very strongly to get more and more uh, pulse fishing licenses. On the environmental part, or maybe more the French fishing part, uh, it's difficult to make that distinction. The lobby has been going on quite strongly as well, especially in the Dutch media, where pulse fishing is all over the place uh, the last two weeks. So you mentioned earlier that the French fishermen are afraid that too many fish are being fished. Um, So that's a very inelegant phrase. (laughs) Could you tell me a bit more about this fear that the kind of seas will run dry? How, How realistic is that? Do we know how much of a problem that is in the seas around the Netherlands and France? And Europe in general it's difficult to really uh, generalize it like for example mediterranean seas are european seas as well and you cannot really compare them to the north sea for example but the species that are being caught by the pulse fishing uh, fleet for example uh, they are not in a terribly bad shape Uh, the main problem i think with this fishing technique is not about catching enough fish it's about destroying a marine environment the method of fishing these flatfish is done in a destructive way, either with beam trawling, which destroys the seafloor, or with pulse trawling, which might have all kinds of uh, detrimental impacts that we don't yet fully understand. As mentioned, Dominic, I've been in Vienna this week, and I did, although I was working quite a lot, I did get some time to do some very Viennese things. Did you go to a ball? No. I just sat in a windowless press bunker for a long time. But when I wasn't in the windowless press bunker, I was eating a lot of schnitzel and Sasha Torta, delicious chocolate cake, and drinking some beers. So that was really nice. But I did notice that there are posters for balls everywhere, even at the United Nations, which is where I was working for the last couple of days. And uh, yeah, it was just kind of interesting to see that this is like a huge social thing that the Viennese, at least some Viennese, are really, really into. And it's such an amazing dated thing, you know. Look at pictures of these events in these beautiful ballrooms. Everyone's in like white tie, beautiful, elegant long dresses. It looks like 1900. It looks like two world wars just never happened. And I'm kind of like 
find the whole thing very romantic and beautiful, but it might also be really horrible and elitist. I don't know. It's so heteronormative and conservative, and they are two things that don't turn me on personally. But maybe there's a really fun side to it. I'm sure it's really nice. I mean, we went to some pretty fancy balls at our university, didn't we, Katie? We did. Dominic and I went to a very posh British university that will not be named. (laughs) Yeah, another one that we can't name. (laughs) Yeah, and that was kind of hideous, wasn't it? The ball season in this show of extreme privilege. And as students, we had to pay, was it like? It's like 100 quid. It was really stupid. Over 100 quid, yeah. Which is enough to pay for like a ticket to a music festival for four days of fun which is what I would prefer to do. Yeah, and it would just be one night. But I mean, it was always amazing how they transformed our place of living into this incredible party space. I mean, the Viennese thing does look quite similar in the sense of being really sort of stiff and formal. So while I was in Vienna, I was having dinner with a bunch of the other Vienna press corps. One of them got a call. I'm not allowed to name names, but quite a senior British journalist on the phone saying, I've flown in for this Viennese ball and I've been turned away at the door because my dress is a couple of inches too short. And she'd flown all the way in for this thing and then got turned around by these like super strict Viennese ball organisers. No way. The thing I'm kind of interested to know about is whether it's actually fun or whether it's just like really formal and and mostly about uh, pretense. But I think if there's anyone who can convince us It is Matthias Brandsetter. He is a Viennese local. He used to be a dance teacher and uh, spent a lot of time organising balls uh, over the last few years. And we're going to give him a quick call to tell us the do's and don'ts of balling. Balling. started out when I was like uh, 15 and my dad and his girlfriend uh, decided that uh, their son should go to dancing school and then there was me and then they decided I should go with them and after a few lessons their son did decide that he, he's not so much into dancing and I was like yeah it's a good way of escaping for an afternoon on a Saturday not having to do homework and not having to do housework so I started dancing and uh, few lessons later they asked me if I want to be part of their staff and this is how it all started. So this is like full-on ballroom dancing? Yeah this is full-on ballroom dancing. This is uh, something that we do in Vienna and basically every kid aged 14, 15, 16 at least takes one class. It's kind of general education considered over here so everybody should be aware of how to do at least the Viennese waltz and some foxtrot and some boogie because in all social gatherings there will be dancing. Wow. Are we just talking about like people from quite well-off families or is it really like a classless thing where even kids from, you know, like disadvantaged families will be learning this kind of stuff at school? This is the cool thing about it. Everybody does it. So if it's the the worker's daughter or if it's the banker's um, boy, you know, everybody does it. So it's, it's considered to go through all social classes and through all uh, social statuses. Also, the dance school that I've been working at, uh, we were giving discounts for people who couldn't afford it. So if you, I don't know, if you're an orphan or if you are have a single mom or if you are, I don't know, have a financial disadvantage, they will often uh, just let you take the classes for free. That's really super nice. It is. <laughs> so um, you are a specialist in the dance, but also, I believe, in the general etiquette for attending a ball. Are there so many rules that as an outsider, like if me or Katie went without knowing what we should do, would we have to take a class in the etiquette before we went? Or is it not really as strict as that? I would not consider it to be a class. I would just consider it to be some rules that you need to be aware of, like 
who asks whom for a dance? Am I allowed to say no? Uh, what happens if somebody greets me? Who is shaking hands with whom? Uh, am I allowed to be on a first name basis with everybody, or have I got to be on a on a like in, in German there is this do and this see this polite form and this uh, yeah. very impolite form of uh, approaching somebody, all this kind of stuff. And am I helping the person I I, I go to the ball with out of the coat or in the coat oh or God. all the, those kind of questions are the ones that should bother you or not. I mean, it depends on how serious you take the whole ball and going to a ball thing. Because I'm already getting like palpitations of anxiety just thinking about all of those questions. <laughs> like, am I, am I going to be able to have fun at this thing? That's the nice thing about it. All these rules are meant to make it easier. Because if you know that you you don't say no to somebody who's asking you for a dance, that makes it much easier. And that also takes away sort of a barrier between men and women or dancing partners, you will always be given a chance, at least one chance. And also knowing that if, I don't know, you have, you would have, we would be on a ball and you would uh, tell me that you need to go to the bathroom for a minute, you would know that I would bring you there and wait in front of it instead of just saying, okay, we'll meet later and then you'll never find your partner again because there are like 5,000 people in the same ball. Most of it is common sense or could be called common sense. But it's always good to talk about it. Can you go with your own partner or are you there to kind of court and meet new people? Both options. So what people would do, what I would do is I would go there with a partner. So I would ask now my girlfriend or some friend that I would like to go to a ball to. It doesn't have to be, for me, it doesn't have to be a woman. It could also be just a guy friend that I want to hang out with and have a nice evening. So you would go there with somebody else, but you don't necessarily have to because there are so many other people and just by asking somebody to dance or just by standing at a bar, you would automatically get in contact and get in, in touch with other people. But it's always much nicer if you go with a group that you know. And tell us about the whole like debutante aspect of that, Matthias, because I have to confess, I knew very, very little about this before, but I've seen all these pictures of debutantes and white dresses and stuff like that. Is that still very much a part of every Viennese ball in the season? Definitely is. The debutante thing is probably one of the, how do I put it? One of the biggest mysteries on one hand and one of the nicest things about all these balls because uh, you know if you are like 15 and you took your first dancing class and you want to go to a ball and probably you can't afford it uh, then you would just be a debutant because then the whole thing is free except for the dress you would have to buy but then you can reuse it for like 20 other balls too and also go there without paying a single uh, euro or cent for your ball ticket. The whole thing originated in being a real debutant, like being introduced to society. So like a few hundred years ago, you would go there to be shown off sort of to everybody else who is in, in the same kind of society as you are because you know balls are divided into there's the coffee brewers ball there's the hunters ball there's even a ball for the people who take your your trash to the landfill huh. so you will be introduced to your society or the society that you kind of belong to i'm not sure if this is a term that is easy to process but yeah and it became a thing where you could just go to balls for for free by participating in the debutant uh in the debutant opening it is a very cool moment. You walk out, you are the first person to dance at this ball. Everybody's looking at you. There's bright light. Your partner is in a white dress, or if you're a woman, your partner is in a tuxedo or a white tie. It's really nice. I mean, the music is there. Everybody's staring at you. Um, you do a choreography that nobody else knows, so it's sort of a surprise for, for the whole audience. There is a live orchestra playing for you, and you dance to that, and that makes it a 
a really great memory. Are there some people that kind of look at this whole scene and like, you know, this is outdated, things like the debutante thing need to change? Or would you say that Viennese people in general are quite protective of the tradition and really get behind it in general? Wherever there's a tradition, there's somebody who says this has to change, right? So, yes, definitely there might be. I've, I don't know any of them and nobody ever came forward and said, hey, Matthias, uh, this whole ball thing has to change. But there are many balls who transition from a classical ball opening ceremony where you have music like Strauss or music like uh, Lana or somebody to more modern music. I've been conducting many ball openings where we actually did openings to film music. I've also done rock openings to rock music, which is nice because it kind of keeps the idea of the tradition alive, but still gives it a modern touch. Is there a, um, any kind of queer ball scene or less heteronormative scene that's emerging in Vienna? I, I just guess there is, but I haven't actually looked into it. Yes, there is. And uh, today, Saturday the 27th, there is what we call the Regenbogenball. It's the rainbow ball, which is the queer ball. And they have a queer opening. They have a queer uh, midnight surprise. Everything is queer, which is really nice because they... They kind of stick with the tradition, but give it the new touch. They just express what they are, and they just make their own thing out of it. But they also keep the outline of what a ball is supposed to be, which is nice too. That is nice. There is a ball that is especially considered for drag queens in Graz, which is called the Tuntenbar, which, yeah, there's a scene for that too, yeah. But the average Viennese ball that's happening during the season, which is right now, would involve, you know, like proper full white tie, long dresses for women and that kind of thing. True. That is absolutely positive, but the more informal balls would not have a long dress. It would be okay if your dress is to your knees and not to your ankles. And there are also some balls where you would wear, uh, would not wear white tie, but you would wear your dindel and your lederhosen. This is also happening, for example, the Steirerball or the Hunter's Ball, uh, where you could see folk clothing. Why are the balls right now, Matthias? Is it, why is this the season? How did the tradition come about? That's a good question. There is this thing called Carnival, which starts on November 11th and goes right till the Lent season starts on yeah. Wednesday after the last ball of the season, which is the Elmeyer Kränzchen. So this is the, the time of the year where you would celebrate and this is the time where the balls would take place. Oh, I see, because Lent is supposed to be like a time of uh, not really having any fun. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's one way of putting it, Katie. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering, uh, before we go, we came up with a few quick fire questions of like do's and don'ts. I currently have a broken shoulder and I can't put my jacket on. Does that mean I should stay at home if I can't put a jacket on? Probably yes. Oh, sad. That is sad. Am I allowed to ask a gentleman or lady that I like the look of if they'll dance with me? Sure. Oh, okay, that's not just for boys. No. Okay, cool. Uh, if I have lost my white bow tie and only have a stripy one, is that okay? That is okay, but they will probably sell you a white one at the entrance. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's all a money-making opportunity. <laughs> have you got a final one, Katie? Um, will I get kicked out if I dance on the table? Uh, yes. Damn it. Okay, well, I make a nice mental note not to do that. <laughs> so I've got one main happy ending, but before I have the happy ending, I want to tell you about a show I went to this week that in Amsterdam that was amazing. I went to see this show called Dancing Grandmothers by the Korean choreographer Unmei An. 
I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. It's literally what it sounds like. It's a group of Korean grandmothers who are touring the world dancing. And it is so joyful and brilliant. They are like people from every walk of life. And a lot of them have lived in poverty. And this is just like giving them a second wind. And it was so nice to see. It's combined with some professional dancers doing amazing choreography based on the grandmother's uh, natural movements. Oh, so is it quite interpretive? I was thinking of it as, we've just been talking about Viennese balls, so I was thinking quite formal. But is it more sort of like, do whatever you want, grandma? No, it's very contemporary. The grandmas are encouraged to just kind of do what they want. I mean, there were some like slightly awkward moments where the professional dancers like just push the grandmas onto the stage. <laughs> and they're like, okay, your time is up and pull them off stage. Uh, but it was so nice. There was such an amazing atmosphere. And at the end, everyone was invited up to dance on the stage, which I obviously had to turn down because of my old gammy shoulder. Oh, no. Which was really sad. But um, they are touring Europe at the moment. I think actually maybe it's coming to an end but uh if you see them coming anywhere close to where you are then jump on that opportunity you made that sound like if you literally see them coming towards you (laughs) if you see a group of dancing korean grandmothers then uh, jump on the grandmas (laughs) absolutely what what are they called again the show's called dancing grandmothers that's what it says in the tin um anyway i have a nice queer happy ending for you this week I'm hoping it's not from Britain again because you've got a rather a bad track record now. No, with this story we are actually making our first foray into Russia to the eastern edge of the continent. Ooh. This story starts at the Ulyanovsk Institute of Civil Aviation. Good start. 700 kilometres east of Moscow and it's the scene where a group of young male cadets made a rather risque music video in their underwear based on the Benny Benassi video, Satisfaction. Let me just play you a tiny clip of the song because you will know it. Push me and then just touch me till I can get my satisfaction. Now, the original video for that song is itself satirical and depicts various scantily clad women doing construction type jobs like hammering and drilling in like a sexy way. How ridiculous. So ridiculous. But the young male cadets subverted the original and made this like home video uh, where they were doing like household chores such as dusting and sweeping all in a (laughs) kind of highly sexualized and homoerotic way wearing little tight boxes and some kind of bondage wear. This was obviously quite like a controversial thing to do in Russia where there are lots of anti-gay laws and I I'm, I don't think these guys are gay I think they're heterosexuals but um, it, it's not certain if the video was meant to go public because you would have guessed that there would be a, quite an uproar against it which there was um, once the video went viral there was some pretty nasty stuff coming from the authorities and an investigation was launched by the civil aviation force and where they said they would investigate all circumstances and causes of this outrageous incident so yeah it was looking pretty scary for these cadets at one point and they were being compared to pussy riot by um some of the high up officials and there were calls for them to be punished and expelled and even prosecuted but next a truly wonderful thing happened and a wave of copycat videos started to emerge across social media under the hashtag satisfaction. Dozens and dozens of these videos. So construction workers, a group of jockeys, some emergency service workers, and even a group of retired women who are living in communal flats. So the number of clips continue to grow and uh, they come from such a broad spectrum of Russian society that they are like fundamentally questioning the idea that Russian 
is an inherently conservative place. Obviously, there's a difference between a group of heterosexual men dancing in their underwear and the acceptance of queer culture. It just gives a glimpse of the acceptance that could one day re-emerge in Russia. And because of this wave of defenders on social media, there's been a stark softening of rhetoric on state media and from the high-up officials. Oh, what, because they've realised that public opinion is quite in favour of these guys? Yeah, they have. And they've had quite a few high-profile defenders recently, including the mayor of Yekaterinburg, who described them as the coolest students. Cool. So there's a really good New Yorker article about this phenomenon by Masha Gessan, and they say that these parodies are pure protest, raunchy, and playful and in this article it has links to dozens of these videos and I really recommend you go through and watch some of them. I just wonder if we can maybe start a second wave of European videos in support for these people by maybe doing one ourselves? Oh what me and you? Is that a good <laughs> idea? We could do sort of sexy podcasting. We could. We've got microphones. I mean what could be more useful as a prop? Oh god. <laughs> We should also think about our careers. Um, let's mull over that and, and get back to you. Yeah, we'll think about that. But we thoroughly encourage everyone else to get out there and, and make some sexy satisfaction videos. Yeah, hang on a second. I'm just finishing my Austrian Mozart ball. Delicious little chocolate ball. Carry on talking. So while Katie is uh, munching on a Mozart ball, I would like to thank our wonderful guests this week, Pavel and Matthias, and also our one-man jingle factory, Jim Barn. Uh, please follow us on Instagram if you have it. Our Insta is Europeans Podcast. We're on Twitter at Europeans Pod, and you can send us an email, europeanspodcast at gmail.com. You've left me with literally nothing to do, so I'm going to start another Mozart ball. We've had some wonderful reviews on iTunes, some really nice ones, so thank you to those of you who have written them. We really value it and are touched by your nice words. We are. But if you haven't done it yet, then... It's never too late. Just bite the bullet. You can also just walk into the streets and tell your friends to listen to this podcast. That would be really nice. Yeah, it doesn't even have to be friends. Strangers are fine too. Or if you're at a Viennese ball, just walk up to someone in white tie, whisper in their ear, hey, have you heard about this great new podcast? Good idea. Yes, thank you. Have a lovely week, lovely listeners, and we'll see you next week. Auf Wiedersehen. Cheers. Cheers.